Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 264b, Rebel Queen, number 3, Rival. Yesterday we followed Jane's tempestuous day and her proclamation as the rightful Queen of England on the 10th of July, 1553. But what of her rival, the Princess Mary, eldest daughter of Henry VIII? Mary for some time had been made aware of Edward's pain and illness. She received constant, courteous and respectful correspondence from the Duke of Northumberland about progress. She was utterly convinced of the Duke's goodwill, and why would she not be? She was heir, under her father's will. Not just that, but everybody recognised it as a universally accepted fact and the rightful way of the world. There were some discordant notes about her trust in Northumberland, and the principal source was from the Imperial Ambassador Shiver, who worried that Northumberland was pursuing power that he would lull the princess into a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling that you get after a few pints of Breakspeare's Ordinary or Rebellion Ale and a couple of bags of nuts, and that she would fall, like a plum, into Northumberland's evil lap. Shiver and Renard were also pathologically gloomy about Mary's prospects. Northumberland held the sinews of Tudor power. Once he pulled them, Mary would be doomed. So, you know, not necessarily the most positive kind of people you want around in a crisis especially as Charles V had specified no military support. Mary's household officers, though, appeared to be a good deal less hysterical than Shiver, though just as worried. Robert Rochester was the controller of her household. He had remained calm and realistic during the crisis of 1550 and Mary's aborted flight. He was described as a man of few equals in steadfastness, loyalty and wise counsel. It seems likely that Rochester made preparations in case of a disaster, together with three other of Mary's officers, Jermingham, Waldegrave and Englefield. Together they appear to have created a local network of loyal men around Suffolk, Essex and Norfolk, just in case things went pear-shaped. And after all, Mary wasn't short of resources. She had an income of over £3,500. And by 1553, Mary had been an East Anglian magnate for over six years. And that meant not only had she built her manred, her network of loyal tenants sworn to turn out for her, she had made her affinity distinctive. And she'd not just kept her head down. She defied the evangelicals. She consciously held herself out as a beacon of hope for everyone of the old religion. For men like Robert Rochester, this was even more reason to give Mary their undivided loyalty. Rochester's own brother John had been a Carthusian monk, hanged, drawn and quartered by Henry VIII for refusing to submit to his religious reforms. When the letter came to Mary at Hunsdon then from Northumberland on the 4th of July, 
calling her to come to the bedside of her dying brother, she actually made preparations to comply. She may even have set off. We do not know who stepped forward with the critical information that all was not as it seemed and told Mary about the device for the succession, that this could be a trap. The Catholic historian Lingard confidently stated that it was the Earl of Arundel, but without giving a shred of supporting evidence. In fact, Rochester seems like a better candidate. It seems that Rochester took himself secret to London, that he met with the imperial ambassadors there, the night sessions they called them. It was probably Rochester who came to his mistress and told her about the rumours. So, Mary had a decision to make. Did she trust the fair words of Northumberland, or the worries of her loyal Rochester? Mary made her choice probably late on the 4th of July. Her immediate household were told they're moving out, and Mary rode out from the gates of Hunsdon. But she didn't go south towards London, she went north. Behind her at Hunsdon, her physician John Hughes stayed behind to travel into London because physicians could move freely around London without suspicion. Maybe he could find out and bring news of Edward's death if and when it occurred. No, as she rode through the night, Mary would have realised that this was not yet an irrevocable act. She could always play dumb if it turned out that Edward really was dead and that no monkey business was intended. By the morning of the 5th, Mary and her party had travelled 30 miles to Sawston. They changed horses, they kept going, and they turned east, into the heart of East Anglia, into Mary's hood, riding for an incredible 38 miles to Euston, maybe travelling along the ancient Icknield Way. There, they were put up by the Earl of Bath, but no rest of the wicked. From Euston, they'd almost made it to the centre of Mary's power, her great house at Kenning Hall, formerly, of course, the seat of the Howards, until the Duke's fall from grace. On the 7th of July... Another weary traveller rushed into Kenning Hall. He was a goldsmith, and therefore also probably able to travel around without suspicion, carrying out his trade, as it were. And he'd carried out commissions for Mary before, and so she knew him. The goldsmith was sent by a courtier and the king's counsellor in London called Nicholas Throckmorton, who at this point was doing that trickiest of things, running with the hare and hunting with the hounds. As the cunning folk through the ages have made clear, this is not something you can do without serious injury. The goldsmith had travelled all the way from London, and that's not shy of a hundred miles, and he brought news. Edward the King was dead. No doubt, at this point, he fell to his knees and said, Long live the Queen, but I'm making that bit up. Mary, though, waited. This goldsmith of hers was a prot. Throckmorton was a prot. Potentially lying toads, then. Maybe this was part of the Protestant Northumberland's Protestant plot to get her to declare herself Queen, while Edward was still alive, and that would be 100% solid treason, wham-bam, thank you, Sam. Nope, Mary would wait for John Hughes. He was a good Catholic and an insider. John Hughes duly arrived at Kenning Hall on the 9th of July, and he asked to see the princess. His news was that Edward really was dead, to a degree that would make a dodo look like a limbo dancer. Now, Jane had not been publicly proclaimed queen when he left, but no doubt he brought news from Throckmorton that Jane was the heir and would be proclaimed soon by right of King Edward, as attested by his will and the finest legal minds in the country. So, Mary now faced an irrevocable choice. She had three options, really. She could accept her duty to abide by the will of the Sovereign of England, which, as laid down by her father, allowed him to choose his heir by prerogative right. That carried some risks, actually. 
Presumably she'd be treated like a princess. But the Queen and the Council would always be worried about her as a centre of resistance. And maybe they'd put her under house arrest. Maybe they'd get so nervous at some point that they'd top her. It was unlikely, but it's impossible to be sure. Or she could leg it. The Empire was full of good Catholics. There's no doubt they would shield her. She could gather a big army and come back and win her crown. That would be safer, probably. She'd be free, wined and dined somewhere in the Empire, while some Imperial generals sought to win her a crown at the end of a pike. Or, third option, she became a traitor, a rebel queen, and fight with all her people right here, right now. You know what I mean. Mary called her household together and listened to what they had to say to her. And then she made her decision. She would claim the kingdom of her father and her ancestors, which was owed to her as much by hereditary right as by her father's will. Mary had more than a grain of her father's talent for crowd-pleasing, and she asked for the aid of her most faithful servants as partners in her fortunes. This was exactly what her loyal followers wanted to hear. They went potty and cheered her to the rafters and hailed and proclaimed their dearest Princess Mary as Queen of England. May I just say a couple of things at this point? One is, why on earth is it always Jane Grey who is presented as the anomaly, the usurper? It's very odd. The right for a king to name his successor had been a tradition recognised since Anglo-Saxon times. The principle had been recognised in 1544 in Henry's succession plans. Edward VI had nominated Jane as his rightful heir through a clearly attested and documented process. On the 9th of July, the banner that Mary raised was that of a rebel queen. The second point is that this, though, would have appeared nowhere in the house of Mary's mind. Nowhere. Not even that bit under the sofa you always forget to clean. From the core of her being, Mary knew herself to be rightful queen. Whatever Mary's strengths and weaknesses, she never lacked courage. We have seen, though, that she could be terminally indecisive, and it's still more impressive then that she took very little time to decide what she should do here. You can imagine also that she never wanted to feel again as she had when she had submitted to her father's will, accepted her mother's marriage as illegal, and became a political cipher. This time you could stand her up at the gates of hell. She would not back down. The traditional story of Mary's rebellion has been written as an extraordinary few days where the decision to resist was followed by the creation of an army from scratch. In fact, as we've seen, Mary was already surrounded by a core group of household men who were in contact with their networks and man-read around East Anglia. Mary's team now started calling in that network. Think 101 Dalmatians and the Twilight Bark. Well, maybe don't think that. Letters had started going out from Kenninghall the previous day. The big question now was, would the network answer the call? To do so, they would need to break the tradition and habits of a lifetime of obedience to the Tudor state. Firstly, though, the world must be told. They must be told that they had a saviour from the usurper Jane Grey and the evil Duke of Northumberland. And so, Mary sat down with her team to write to the council. And you know, maybe it would not be too late. Maybe the council could be called to heal, reminded whose daughter she was. Let's go back to the tower then, where I left you with the Queen Jane at a grand feast, surrounded by the great and the good of the council and their families, all trying to have a nice time and ignore the sullen silence of the population outside. Jane and Guildford 
were trying to get over their first tiff as a married couple, as Jane had asserted herself she was queen, Guildford was her consort, and would not rule her. So we might imagine a scene of enforced jollity when a servant of the tower came and whispered in Northumberland's ear a visitor had arrived and he bore a letter from Princess Mary. Northumberland obviously decided they were all in this together. The truth can't hurt. Nothing I can't hear, my friends can't hear. All those sort of good things. And so Mary's servant was announced and came forward into the hall. Thomas Hungate was a Yorkshireman and originally the man of Sir Anthony Brown. Brown had been a powerful member of the council under Henry VIII and was probably in his late thirties in 1553. Brown had been one of those who'd taken the opportunity offered by Mary to take the mass in defiance of Edward's reformation. At some point, Hungate had been introduced to Mary's household and he was the man who received Mary's commission to carry out this critical role. Hungate must have travelled hard from Kenning Hall, and his journey took him not to the Tower, or at least not straight away. It took him first to the house of Jean Shiver, who I will call the Imperial Ambassador just one more time. But really, you must be so bored of me saying that. So sorry. Just wanted to make sure you knew. Anyway, Shiver admitted him immediately, and from Hungate's mouth, he received Mary's secret message. A message a good deal less bullish than her official one. And a message which sets Mary's courage and determination even higher. Because in her heart, Mary thought her cause was doomed, and that without the support of the Empire, she saw nothing but destruction hanging over her. I do not know what reply Shiver gave Mary, but in his heart, he also thought Mary was doomed. He could see the men of Northumberland's livery in the city. He knew that Northumberland would have access to the artillery and armoury of the Tower, and his master had specifically instructed him that despite Mary's wishes for foreign soldiers to help her rebellion, he could give no help except that which words and wishes could bring. From Shiver then, Hungate hurried through the London night to the tower. Well, I say hurried. I have no idea. Maybe he bought himself a couple of buns along the way and put his feet up. Who knows? But that evening, on the 10th of July, he arrived at the tower and demanded to be taken to the council because he had a message for them. As he waited outside the doors of the Great Hall, he could probably hear the sound of music of people laughing and talking inside. Maybe the Earl of Arundel was telling one of his famous fart jokes again. Maybe Suffolk was the cause of the groaning from the impact of a series of dad jokes. Who knows? But probably somewhat to his surprise, Hungate was admitted to the Great Hall itself. I imagined he'd expected to be shown to the private room for a quiet little chat. Not so. Probably nervous, reminding himself of the saying, don't shoot the messenger, he stepped up. Silence fell as Hungate read out the letter from his princess. Mary had gone for the not-so-much-hurt-as-disappointed approach, always an effective one, I found. She expressed surprise that no one had told her of her brother's death. She sternly told them that she was well aware of the discussions about undoing the will of her dad, the great Henry. She told them that she was well aware of the great bands and provisions forcible wherewith ye be assembled and prepared. By whom and to what end? God and you know, and nature cannot but fear some evil. She graciously promised that if they put these things right and did as she asked, she'd let them off with a bit of gentle chiding and a few extra household chores. What she required of them was this. We require you and charge you and every of you that every of you of your allegiance which you owe God and us and to none other for the honour and surety of our purpose only employ yourselves and on receipt hereof 
cause our right and title to the crown and government of this realm to be proclaimed in our city of London and other places as to your wisdom would seem good. The response to Mary's uncompromising message was initially silence, with a bit of horror mixed in. It seems that it was not only Northumberland who had convinced themselves that Mary would crumble, lay down and die. Jane's mum and the Duchess of Northumberland both burst into tears. Northumberland's stomach, I have no doubt, suddenly felt leaden and heavy. But Northumberland knew that it was up to him to take control, up to him to show confidence. He made himself stand up, he marched over to Hungate and he took the letter. I'm truly sorry that it was your lot to be so immature and thus rashly to throw yourselves away in this embassy. And while Hungate muttered something that sounded a bit like, what about not shooting the messenger? Northumberland ordered him thrown into prison. The party, of course, was ruined. Mary's shout of defiance had crashed against the walls of the tower. She would fight. make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.